to be in Nehemiah chapter 3. And as you're turning there, let me bring up speed. Nehemiah is a wonderful book in the Old Testament of an ordinary man that God called to do an extraordinary thing. He was the cupbearer to the king, very strategically placed, and the Lord used that placement and a burden in his heart to undertake one of the most strategic and significant building processes in the entirety of the Old Testament, where a wall is rebuilt around Jerusalem that has both practical and spiritual significance. It's practically significant because it protected the uh, city of Jerusalem from its marauding neighbors, but it's also spiritually significant because it allowed them to reinstitute temple worship, which showed that they were interested in coming back online as the people of God with their God. So it's been a great story so far. Today, very interesting text that is a text that many people skip over because it is literally just a list of names. Or is it? And that's part of what we're going to talk about today. So let me uh, pray for the Spirit's help, and we'll get right to work. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and illuminate these texts to us. We pray that we'd be informed in our knowledge of Scripture, transformed by the renewing of our minds, conformed to the image of Christ, and recommissioned on the Great Commission. Lord, help me, frail as I am, to serve us well in this time. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, the way that we're going to handle this passage today uh, is, is very different. Typically, I will just work sequentially through a chunk of text. Uh, this, because of the nature of the text itself, does not really lend itself to that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make uh, some observations about the text kind of holistically and dip in and out of the specifics uh, as needed. So my encouragement would be follow along in your copy of the scriptures, but I would encourage you read this again later, and I think it will mean even more to you then as you get to see it and see it and see it again. Now, as we jump into this, let me give you a couple of uh, introductory comments, so to speak, about the text. What we're going to have here is somewhat of a drone flyover in how Nehemiah describes this. It is a counterclockwise fly-through around the wall and the list of the names of the people that worked on it where they did. It contains 41 parties that participated in the reconstruction of 42 sections of the wall. It includes both rebuilding the wall and the gates. And just to give you the scope of the magnitude of what we're talking about here, this wall all the way around would have been between two and two and a half miles, and it would have enclosed 90 to 220 acres. Each of the 42 sections would have averaged about 250 feet in length, though there was one extraordinarily long section and a couple of sections that were uh, decidedly shorter. The wall itself would have been about 15 to 20 feet high and about three to four feet thick. So it is literally nothing short of miraculous that A, this work got completed at all, B, it got completed by people with basically no construction experience, and C, that it got completed in the amount of time that it did. Now, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Nehemiah taking time off from his real job to go do this, this uh, uh, job, it, we said that it took 12 years. Well, that's how long he was gone, but that is not how long that it took to rebuild this wall. In fact, adding to the miraculous nature of what God does here, 
the rebuilding of this wall took 52 days. 52 days to build this miles and miles of wall with basically unskilled labor. So it truly is a quintessential example of what we pray for all the time. They got to see, quite literally, what only God can do. Now, upon that foundation, let me build a couple of points. Uh, the first one, from the entirety of the text itself, I think the fact that these names are included at all actually gives us our first point. And that is that Nehemiah models good leadership by including these names in the first place. What did we learn in the beginning of this book? We learned that these first few chapters are essentially like Nehemiah's journal, his memoirs. The first seven chapters and verse 13, or chapter, uh, chapter 13, fall into that categorization. And instead of Nehemiah drawing on and on and on and talking only about himself and what a great leader he was and all this kind of stuff, he, he didn't do any of that. And in fact, he takes an entire chapter here and then another chapter later toward the end of the book, and we're not going to treat it then because it's basically the same list of names, but it was so important to him that he included the record of who these people were and what they did twice in this book. That shows fantastic leadership. That shows that he was a man of appreciation who understood and valued the contribution that each of these workers made. And listen, that is something we need to ping in on. That is something that we need to pay attention to. Let's start in the workplace with our application here. If you are a team leader, uh, if you are a manager of any kind, let me ask you a hard question. Do you value the contribution of the other members on your team? What do you do or what have you done lately that would follow in the stead of what Nehemiah is talking about here? That he cared about his people so much that he went out of his way to include them in what we now have as Holy Scripture. And here we sit 2,000 plus years later talking about these people that did this work. As leaders, as managers, as people that work alongside uh, 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 over, under other people, this kind of awareness, this kind of appreciation, this gratitude-based leadership is something that we can definitely learn from in the workplace. Now, it also applies in the home, because let me ask you this. Husbands, when is the last time you told your wife or you showed your wife, hey, honey, here's how much I appreciate you, you have a very hard job doing all that you do. I just want you to know I value your contribution to this home. Same thing, wives toward husbands. When's the last time you communicated in some way, husband, I really appreciate what you're doing to play the role that you play in this home. Even children toward their parents. Kids, when's the last time that you said to your parents, hey, listen, I know you guys got a lot going on. I really appreciate what you guys do, taking me to practice, making sure I go out of lunch, that kind of stuff. This kind of gratitude, this kind of appreciation, this kind of valuing the work of God in those around us, it's really important. It's good leadership and it's good living. And this is what 
we can learn even from the simple fact of the inclusion of these names. So let me ask you this. What's the Lord saying to you already through this? Who do you need to encourage? Who do you need to appreciate? Who do you let, need to let know, I see you, I hear you, I value what you're doing, and I just want you to know. Let's learn that from Nehemiah today. Now, I also think we can take a lesson here from who led this work under Nehemiah's leadership and also where this work began. Now, look at verse 1 in your text. It says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up <coughs> with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it <coughs> and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hanel. Now, this tells us two things. Number one, the fact that the high priest is leading the way and the fact that they began with the sheep gate, which is where the sheep would come in uh, toward the temple to be sacrificed, this leads us to our second principle. And that is that Nehemiah shows us that we should always seek to put God first in any endeavor. We should always seek to put God first in any endeavor. This was the practical way he did this. The priest let out, the sheep gate was where they started. Now, this phrase here about putting God first, I mean, it's the kind of thing that gets tossed around. You, you, you see it sometimes with athletes and other things, but it's really important to understand because it is the biblical concept, almost like tithing, for example. What does the Bible teach about giving? That we give our first and our best to the Lord. Now, this is that same idea, but it's holistic. That Nehemiah was saying, <coughs> listen, the most important thing here isn't simply protecting us from these warring neighbors. It's getting us back online with who we're supposed to be as God's people. The resumption of temple worship was and is the most important thing in what God is calling Nehemiah to do. So let me ask you this question. If you take a step back and you look at your work and you look at your life and you look at the way that you're currently living and the pursuits that you were undertaking, be they financial, be they familial, be they academic, be they sports, whatever it is that you're into, could you say you were seeking to put God first in all those endeavors? My guess is that the answer is going to be mm, sometimes, because this is the kind of thing that it's not a set it and forget it, but it's an ongoing series of bringing everything under the Lordship of Christ. This is right in line with what Martin Luther taught us when he said all of life is repentance that we are constantly getting off track and going back to God and getting off track and going back to God because that's part of dealing with the remaining sin in this life, in the world <coughs> in which we live. But the good news here is we have the opportunity to put God first and we have the grace to draw near to him so that we might put God first. So my encouragement to you would be, as you hear this now, as you think about it this week, as you discuss this with your community group, with your Thrive group, whoever else, that you would listen to the Spirit of God and we would be responsive 
to those areas where we need to put God first and also where we might be off track in this season. So let's listen to what the Spirit says to us here. <clears throat> now, next, I want to point out a couple things about the workforce uh, itself. You see this in verse 11 and verse 19, verse 21, verse 24, verse 27, and verse 30. <clears throat> you see that different people are doing different kinds of jobs. Uh, some are able to work a lot. Maybe they're young and strong and healthy. Some are uh, not able to work hardly at all. This is just the nature of the beast. Also, certain seasons of life, some people may be able to, to do a lot. Some people not able to do as much. This is certainly borne out in the story of rebuilding this wall in Nehemiah's day. But what we also notice here is these workers were strategically positioned where they could make the greatest impact. You see this in verse 10, verse 23, verse 28, verse 30. Most of them were positioned just outside of their homes because Nehemiah knew that people would intrinsically, intuitively work harder if they had some real skin in the game, if they knew that this section of the wall was going to protect themselves and their family from these marauding nations coming and trying to break through and kill them and their kids. So he was very smart and wise, knowing that different people had different capacities, but also that they would work harder if they worked right near their house. And so that, taken together, leads us to our third principle today, and that is, <coughs> like each of these workers, we also have been strategically positioned to make a unique impact in this world. So Nehemiah shows us, but then we extrapolate this out and we see the big picture. Isn't this just what we learn in the New Testament? That God has given us all <coughs> different kinds of spiritual gifts. That he's given some the gift of preaching and teaching. He's given other the gift of helps. He's given uh, some others the gift of faith, uh, the gift of mercy. And, and he uses all these different gifts. It, it's almost like... Like a, like a tapestry that has been woven together. And he uses all of these different threads, different gifts, different talents to make wonderful uh, tapestries for the world to see, for his glory. And this is true <coughs> both for the use of those gifts inside the church and beyond the church as well. And so I think the, the question that we need to ask ourselves here is, do we know what those gifts are, and are we using them? Now, there's a bunch of different ways to kind of come at <coughs> the concept of spiritual gifts and trying to understand what they are. We have some uh, kind of written tests and in instruments that we can help you with that, uh, but sometimes it also just comes up in conversation. What are you passionate about? What do you seem to, uh, what lights you up? But then on top of that, different needs and different seasons and church life, uh, you know, what are, what are the needs? What has God put in you for this strategic position uh, in the life of this church, in this time, in this season, that he might use those gifts and talents uh, in the same way that Nehemiah used these workers here at the wall? Now, as we've been talking about this throughout the summer, nearly every church we're aware of is going through a season of reset. We certainly are. There's going to be some repositioning. There's some things that we're working on 
to, to try to become more effective in different ways. And there's going to be opportunities uh, to serve that perhaps didn't even exist before because of some of these changes that we want to make. So I want to go ahead and put this on your radar through this text so that we would be sensitive to the Spirit as He is leading us into this new uh, season of ministry. But also, here's something else to pay attention to as well. If we're just honest, some jobs, they're just less desirable than others. And the best example of that <coughs> within this text uh, is <coughs> the dung gate. Okay, that, that's literally uh, here, and what you see is basically a gate that would open and close, and all of the refuse of the city uh, would pass out through it. This could be uh, kind of their sewer system. It could also be the animal feces that would have to, have to go away. Uh, also, basically, it was the road to the landfill. And what's interesting is the person that uh, was assigned there uh, was actually some kind of ruler. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this backstory, but we do know uh, that he would have been a, a ruler of some kind, and this shows us great humility. And that actually leads us to our fourth point today, and that is that faithfulness is not about which part you play. It's about how well you play that part. It's not about which part you play, it's about how well you play that part. And listen, I had to learn this one the hard way. In the first uh, early days of our first church plant, uh, church planting had just become kind of a big deal here in North America during this time. And I remember I was kind of like, I was not alone in this, sadly. This was kind of a trend at the time. But there was a lot of information and websites and conferences about uh, uh, church planting, and I remember kind of getting like, I was very excited about what God was doing in our lives and in our church, but I was also kind of envious of those around us. It's ridiculous, but that was the pathology of my own heart coming out. And, you know, you, you kind of get, you go to this conference and you hear this guy and you're like, well, why don't I have a church like that? Or why is God not doing that over here like he's doing over there? And it took a while to kind of get through this, but then eventually just realizing that's ridiculous, and the way that I think that this comes up for a lot of us uh, today is actually through social media, because it is very easy for you to get on Instagram or to get on Facebook. And listen, nobody sets out to do this on purpose, but within just a few seconds of scrolling through your feed, it can immediately become just this envy fest and disappointment fest and comparison fest. And it can easily become, well, uh, I, I wish my body looked like that, or I wish I had a car like that, or a house like that, or a life like that. And immediately, we are despondent, we are despairing, we're sad, we're envious, and all of this, just in a matter of a few seconds, because we have taken our eyes off of Jesus and the part he wants us to play in his story. And we are now coveting the, whatever else is happening in somebody else's life. And it would have been very easy for this guy that was standing at the dung gate, smelling that smell all day long, to be pitching a fit and saying, I wish I was at the fish gate or whatever other gate that there is 
anything but the dung gate. But instead, he was faithful to God. He was faithful to his positioning. <coughs> and ultimately, God used him to do a very necessary job in the rebuilding of this wall. So let me ask you a question. Where are you envying the part that God has called someone else to play? Every moment that you spend comparing yourself to somebody else or wanting what they have is a moment that we're not spending communing with God and being faithful to the mission that we do have, to the job that he has given us. And I think this example is a wonderful call to repentance in this way. For most of us, this is not a question of, is this true? It's a question of, where is this true? And this is an opportunity for us to go, you know what? That's so right. That's goofy. Why am I thinking this way? I need to come to Jesus. I need to ask for his help. I need to learn from this example. And I need to be faithful <coughs> with what God has given me to do. I need to cry out for the grace of God, for the work of God, for the help of God. And friends, I guarantee you, he's going to help you. He is going to help you do what he's called you to do to play the unique role that he wants you to play to do the thing that he wants to do in your life. And we do not need to waste a second coveting or comparing ourselves to the part he's called somebody else to play. That's not who we are anymore. We need to press into who we are and pray that we would see what only God can do in our lives. Now, a couple more things here about the nature of the workforce. You also notice that it's highly diverse. Uh, you look in verse 1, we already talked about that. You also look in verse, uh, verses 12 through 19, you see both rulers and priests there. Uh, then on top of that, in verse 12, you see both men and women. Uh, the fact that he was including women here in this uh, uh, the, the rebuilding project, nobody blink an eye at that today, but at this time, that would have been a highly unusual and unorthodox thing to do. Uh, so I think, again, this serves as somewhat of a, another example of how what some of you have been told about the Bible is just false. It is not this uh, misogynistic, beat women over the head with a club kind of book. It's exactly the opposite. And if you truly study it, you see these examples. Uh, this is another one. Uh, you also see that it also included some professional craftsmen, verse 8, verse 32, and it actually even had some people from outside the city, verse 2, verse 5, verse 7. But what he basically does is he takes a very diversified team and he organizes them toward a unified goal. But at the same time, it's also important to uh, notice here that in the midst of all this wonderful leadership, these people were not professional craftsmen. Uh, if you grew up in the 70s and 80s, this was the, the bad news bears of the construction industry. And if you're uh, growing up right now, this is the, the suicide squad of the construction industry. These people had no business doing this kind of work. And yet, God uses them to do this really important and almost or, or, or impossible thing apart from the work of God. 
And so again, this is this refrain that you see throughout <coughs> uh, this book. You see it throughout the Bible that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Uh, he does it in the Christmas story. He does it, I've been working through the Gospel of Mark with my son Simon. We've been talking about this. We just got to the part um, where he's calling, where Jesus is calling his, his followers to, uh, to go out and to share the Gospel. Man, that group of people, they could not have been less qualified apart from God knowing exactly who he wanted to reach and him being able to work through this very unqualified group of people to take the gospel to the nations. It's the same thing that he's doing here. It's almost like God purposely sets the deck up, stacks it against himself, so that the only explanation is, look what God has done and is doing. It's truly amazing. And we need to be comforted by that. We need to be encouraged by that. We need to be helped by that uh, in this season of uh, a lot of transition as a uh, as a church, we need to we need to look at this and we go look look. God does extraordinary things, things that defy explanation, through ordinary people, and we need to hang on to that. That's one of those life preserver kinds of truths that will help us because whatever it is God's calling you to do, whether it is. Uh, to step up and serve in here, whether it is to try to reach your neighbors that you've been so far unsuccessful in reaching, uh, talking to that coworker that you've just not been able to kind of get over the gospel hump with, whatever it is, God can do that because it's not you doing it. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory working through you. Now, let me give you another piece of good news here. This comes from verse four uh, and also verse 11, and that is that God uh, is able to use workers that have a very checkered past in this work that he's doing. Verse 4, there's, there's a man mentioned named Merimoth, uh, and he comes from a pretty sad spiritual legacy. His grandfather, Hakaz, uh, we, we learn from history, had been excluded from the priesthood because he had married a foreign wife. And the issue there was not that she was from another country. It's that at this time in history, uh, Israel was prohibited from marrying these foreign wives because they would bring their foreign gods. And time after time after time, you see this. This was, I think, in large part, Solomon's downfall, that they did not listen to the counsel of God. These other people came in, and they started worshiping these, these false gods instead of the true God. So it, it makes complete sense why uh, the grandfather here would have been excluded from the priesthood. But what can happen sometimes is we can get into this thinking, oh, you know, my family was bad, my whatever, then God's not going to do anything with me. And this is a great example of how that's just not the case. Because what's interesting is what Merimoth was given to do, he was actually in charge of carrying the silver, the gold, and other sacred items, which would have been a huge deal, very strategic um, engagement in the midst of this work that they're doing. But there's another example of this uh, down in verse 11, this is a man named uh, Malkijah, and he himself had married a foreign wife, uh, and he became aware of his transgression some 13 years uh, before this was written through the preaching ministry of Ezra, and even in the midst of that, uh, the, the Lord still has a place for him and has a plan for him. 
uh, and there he is in verse 11. Uh, you know, pickaxe in hand, so to speak, uh, being used in what is one of the greatest rebuilding projects in the history uh, of the Bible. So taken together, uh, we cannot let our past ruin our present or our future. We cannot let our past ruin our present or our future because of the grace of God. In some ways, are we not all Merimoth or Malkija. We come from all kinds of craziness in our history and our family line. We have sinned a bunch, made huge mistakes on our own, and yet God still doesn't give up on us. He has a plan for us. He has a hope for us. He has a future for us because of the grace of God. And so as we think about this and we, we see the work of God in the midst of this, um, we we have hope, and we trust that the Lord is with us and for us in Christ, uh, and we just need to be looking forward. Yes, looking back to learn from the past in a sense, but looking forward to what God has in front of us uh, and out ahead of us and not shackled uh, by the sins and difficulties of the past. Another great little truth from this passage. Um, let me point out one more here, and then I want to wrap it up. Uh, there's also kind of something sad here, that not everybody does what they're supposed to do in this rebuilding work. Uh, let me give you, uh, on the, the good side first, somebody that really crushes it. His name was Baruch. Uh, it, it said that he, is, he works zealously. But then also in verse 5, you see this in both verse 20 and in verse 5, there's also a group that is called the nobles that apparently did not work at all. And what it seems is, is that their pride seemed to say to them, hey, we're, we're too good to do this. And friends, we do not want that to be said of us. I don't care how far the Lord lifts us up in life, in business, uh, in whatever way, we don't ever need to be above doing certain things if they need to be done for the kingdom of God. We need to be humble. We need to stay in that low place because God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. We don't want to be like these nobles. We do want to be like Baruch. So let's always be mindful of that and be very circumspect about ourselves and very glorifying of God. Now, how does this get to Jesus? Well, let's start pulling that thread that we just pulled here. Because I can't look at this and see these nobles that wouldn't work because of their pride and not think about the ultimate, most noble, who had no pride and was the quintessential example of humility. Think about what the Apostle Paul says about the Lord Jesus over in Philippians. He said, Christ Jesus, who was, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, don't we see the humility and greatness of Jesus 
right here against the backdrop of the pride of these nobles. Boy, I do. And don't you see him right there and uh, between the lines of what is said here about Baruch who was pointed out to work zealously? Don't you see the zealous work of the Lord Jesus throughout, throughout his entire life? Living a perfect life, dying a substitute's death, gloriously rising again so that we might be friends with God. Don't you see the zeal for his uh, his kingdom advancing through his teaching and through his healing and through all the miracles that he did. Friends, Jesus is in this. How about the fact that Nehemiah had the wisdom and the foresight to include all of these names in his book? Did you know that Jesus has a book filled with the names of his people as well? The Lamb's Book of Life and in that day, when we stand before him, if our name is found there, we will be gloriously welcomed into eternal rest. And you might say, but Dustin, how do we get our name into that book? Friend, we get our name into that book by turning from our sin and trusting in Christ. And some of us who are watching this today, the Lord is calling you to faith and repentance in Christ through this very story. And if that arrests you in some way, then my admonition to you, my welcome to you, would be to admit that you're a sinner, believe in what Jesus has done for you, and confess your sins and commit your life to follow him. Reach out to us. We want to help you take that step, begin that journey with Jesus <coughs> as best we can. But for those whose, whose name is already on the list, whose name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. Friend, my encouragement to you, my reminder to you would be to rejoice in that. To rejoice in that. That it's not about what you did. It's about what Jesus did for you. It's about all that he offers you. It's about his faithfulness to you, his grace shown to you. And that is irrevocable good news. It doesn't matter what any news outlet reports this week. The truth remains the same. If your faith is in Jesus, that is as unshakable of a future as you can have. It doesn't matter what the stock market does. It doesn't matter what the housing market does. It doesn't matter whether you keep your job, lose your job, get another job. The ultimate job has been completed for you through Jesus Christ, and your future is secure based on what he has done. We should rejoice that our names are written on Jesus's list, in Jesus's book, and they are there forever. I also think about just kind of holistically here. I mean, we talked about how the, how the threads of the gospel are just ubiquitous throughout this passage almost, but what other leader has the kind of ultimate faithfulness that we see in the Lord Jesus? Now, I'm thankful for Nehemiah. I truly am. But friends, we are eternally thankful for Jesus. That in a similar way, he strategically positions us on the wall that God has us rebuilding. And he gives us the grace and the strength and the might 
to, to go forward with what God has called us to do. Friends, only Jesus offers that kind of sustaining, empowering grace. And so it is my encouragement today that as we look to Nehemiah and his list of names, that we look through Nehemiah and we see Jesus and his list of names. Friends, where the mo- or do you most need the good news of the gospel today? Wherever it is, let's go before the Lord now and let's rest in it. Let's praise him for it. And let's ask for what only God can do in our lives through this passage. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that this is not just a list of names, but that it is a wonderful window into the leadership of Nehemiah that ultimately points to the leadership of Jesus. Lord, I pray that this truth would rest upon us. I pray that your word would grow up strong within us. I pray that we would indeed, as individuals and as a church, see what only you can do. And we pray all this in the mighty and sufficient name of Jesus. Amen.